Hey, Jay, is the Jean Grey school still around? Oh, Lord, no. Honestly, Miles, I am surprised it lasted as long as it did. I mean, it seemed pretty good. There were classes and everything. That's part of the problem, actually. I mean, have you seen the course listings? Oh, they couldn't have been that bad. Miles, Sam Guthrie teaches a class called Flying Into Things Head First. Okay, that's a little unconventional, but still awesome. I'm sure the rest is fine. Know your alien races and how to kill them? Who teaches that? Lockheed. Well, you've got to admit he's qualified. Oh, you want to talk qualifications? Wait till you hear who's teaching sex ed. Okay, it would be part of the science curriculum, so I assume it must be... Gambit. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 217 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to more Not Executioner's Song, but before we get to what that Not Executioner's Song is going to be... We've got an announcement. We are really excited to be returning this November to Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. It is on Saturday, November 3rd at Clark County Library. It's free, it's a lot of fun, and we love this show a lot because not only is it free and a lot of fun, but it is a library show. And we our, our opinions and our feelings about libraries, I feel like, are, are well-established and well-recorded, but this is one of our favorite ones, and they put on a really, really great convention. If you're going to be in the Vegas area on November 3rd, we would highly recommend that you stop by, and we'd love to see you if you do. Yeah, come by. It's a much quieter show, so we could chat for a while. We're going to be doing a live episode about something we haven't decided yet, but I'm sure it's going to be freaking great. Oh yeah, it'll be, it'll be extra awesome. Although, Scott Koblish isn't going to be there this year, so there will probably not be music. Unfortunate. Well, I don't know. Maybe we can dig something up. Maybe you and I can just get up there and sing for 50 minutes. I, I do have a spouse who has a ukulele who did co-write the, or who wrote the music part of the of Dear Mr. Sinister, so we'll see. I can growl any 70s song that doesn't involve having to deal with pitch at karaoke effectively. I, I, maybe something can happen. We'll see. With our powers combined... Las Vegas and libraries very much aside, let's instead go to a Russian tragedy. Yeah, so fair warning, um, content warning, if you will, this arc is bleak. Nothing good happens in it. I mean, there are some, like, minor happy things, but then they mostly get all fucked up and everything is terrible. You know, we kind of talk about the Summers family as the punching bags of the X-Universe a lot, but boy does it suck to be a Rasputin. It does, but perhaps first we had best give some context for the dark events we are about to witness. All right, Miles, you want to do the honors? Oh, I do. Previously on X-Men. Way, way back in Uncanny X-Men number 160, Ilyana Rasputin fell into a random hole between realities and aged seven years in an alternate dimension before re-emerging a moment later. After she came out, she eventually joined the New Mutants, and she was awesome, but also increasingly demonic. Ilyana ended up sacrificing herself to stop the hell on Earth that was the Inferno crossover. However, while her teenage demonic self was in fact gone, Ilyana was basically regenerated into her untouched, pre-limbo, very young self, um, with no memory of her strange adolescence and not yet manifested mutant powers. She's now living with her parents in Russia, and thankfully nothing bad will happen to any of those characters ever again. Miles is lying. Colossus's life sucks pretty bad these days, though. In addition to his sister being de-aged, which, while it wasn't, like, the worst thing in the world, was pretty traumatic. Well, the events leading up to it were really traumatic. But, um, yeah, he faked his own death, and then his sister apparently died, but came back de-aged and moved away. But they're not the only two Rasputin siblings, or I guess they are now, because his older brother, cosmonaut Mikhail Rasputin, emerged from the dimension that he had been stuck in, turned out to be a huge jerk, killed all the Morlocks, and then committed weird murder-suicide. It was deeply unfortunate. 
Now, speaking of terrible things involving Russia, years ago, the Soviet government created a super soldier named Omega Red. He had a really cool costume, silly powers, a cool name, and that was about it. He also had carbonadium tentacles in his arms. And speaking of silly powers, so his silly powers were something called a mutant death factor. It doesn't make a ton of sense, but you know, sounds badass. The Soviet government put Omega Red on ice since he was unpredictable and scary. But ninja businessman Matsuo Tsuriaba later resurrected Omega Red and is now his boss. Which brings us up to X-Men number 17, A Skinning of Souls. Part 1, Waiting for the Ripening. Uh, this is written by Fabian Nicesa, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Mark Pennington, and colored by Joe Rosas. And, man, um, again, this is, this is going to be really depressing, and the best way you can tell an issue is going to be depressing here, uh, Nicesa continues the Claremont tradition, is if it starts with apparently upbeat narration. The sun shines over the golden fields of the Ustordinsky farming collective on Lake Baikal, Siberia. The girl runs with glee, innocent, free, sweetly unaware of the fact that her father's crop is going to die on the stalk. Russia's collapsed economy unable to purchase the food to sell to the people in this strange new capitalistic society. This is indeed Ilyana Rasputin, the de-aged, still very blonde Ilyana Rasputin. And while technically that introduction is correct, the actual reason that the crops won't be sold are, is that her parents are going to die really, really soon. I gotta say, it is hard seeing Ilyana here. I think this is one of the first, if not the first time, we've seen de-aged Ilyana after she was found in the Dark Child's armor at the end of Inferno. We saw her on the phone with Colossus briefly after Mikhail died. Oh, I thought we just heard her, or I don't even think we heard her, actually. We just heard Colossus's side of the conversation. I think we may not have seen her before. Ah, uh, okay. I don't know, like, her innocence, her being all carefree and stuff, and assuming we don't know what's going to happen, it should be a relief, but for me, it just reminds me of what's gone. It reminds me of the lost development, the lost adolescence, the lost friendships and love and all of that that Ilyana had before she just undid that at the end of Inferno. It's funny that you describe the adolescence as part that's lost because one of the things that really sticks out to me here is that Hubert draws her with a very, very older adolescent or adult face. It is a little confusing. I remember reading the story for the first time as I was simultaneously reading 80s stuff, trying to figure out how it all connected, and I don't think I fully got that this was a de-aged Ilyana. I just thought she had forgotten everything and couldn't speak English anymore. Now, as we and our narrator are watching Ilyana frolicking, someone else is watching her as well. This is a sinister farmer with a viewfinder, and this dude is Flagwatch number 113. His job is basically to keep an eye on Ilyana, and he is one of a large number, at least 113, Russian agents um, who are assigned to pretty much spy on every known or potential mutant. So you mentioned him having a viewfinder, and I know what you mean, but I'm just imagining him with one of those little red things that had the wheel of little pictures, and so maybe he's just looking at, like, pictures of dinosaurs or elephants or something? Oh, no, that's why I said it, because what he's using looks like one. Okay, it totally does, yeah. I'm going to take a step back here, though. So this is X-Men. This is Adjectiveless X-Men, the book that was starring the blue team. And as we've mentioned a number of times, this is mostly a Colossus story. This era, Post-Executioner's Song, really marks a breaking down of the borders between the blue team being an X-Men and the gold team being an uncanny X-Men. And on the one hand, it's cool. It's cool to have that flexibility to be able to see characters interact in different combinations. But at the same time, for me, it makes the books have much less of an independent identity between the two of them. Yes, they have different creative teams, but those have already swapped back and forth so much that it's even hard to feel like you can rely on that. So really, it just feels like there are two X-Men books, you're not sure what's going to be in what, and so you'd better buy both, which, I don't know, maybe that was the idea. It could have been. The lack of those distinct voices or the, the distinct different feels and stories between them is, I think, part of what makes this era feel sloppy and confusing because they are technically two different storylines and two different series but they don't really quite feel like it yeah agreed uh one thing that they do very well though is bring in all sorts of continuity i enjoy this about especially fabian yassi's comics because we now go several thousand miles to the north to the town of neftalensk there two russian mutants have come to investigate a bizarre occurrence 
And before we go into that bizarre occurrence, I think we should talk about the mutants, one of them we've seen before. That is Alexei Garnov, codenamed Blind Faith. The other one, I don't think, um, I don't know if we've actually seen her in an X book before. I know we did a cold open about her. Um, that is Dark Star. That is uh, Lania Petrovna. And Alexei, who is a telepath, sensed what he describes as the systematic erasing of the town's population. But before we go into that, let's talk a little bit about Darkstar and Blind Faith. What's their deal? So Darkstar, who I think she may have been around in that old X-Men Avengers annual when the Soviet super soldiers showed up, she is indeed a former Soviet super soldier. She has a sweet black and yellow costume that I would totally wear, and she can she has powers that relate to the Dark Force, which is a really cool name for a thing, and I almost don't want to learn more about it because I just want to imagine what it might be. She also has a somewhat baffling and deeply, deeply convoluted evil scientist father. Now... Let's see. Um, she was on the Champions for a while, wasn't she? She was, yeah. She was there with Iceman. There was some uh, romantic tension going on. Um, she also, I'd like to point out, shares a name with one of the strangest John Carpenter movies, Dark Star, which was like this sci-fi stoner comedy thriller something from a long, long time ago. They have to convince a bomb at one point that life is worth living because it's going through an existential crisis. It's very strange. That's the one with like where everyone has really good beards, right? Uh, yeah, some of them surf in space while wearing spacesuits. Okay. Um, back to Earth. Alexei Garnov is the guy who we met as Father Garnov in X-Factor Annual Number 1. He was the telepathic leader of the Soviet mutant resistance. He was hanging out with Iron Curtain, Siberian Tiger, etc. And he is still effectively leading the Soviet resistance. The two of them are on a team called the Exiles not those exiles, and they are a group of former Soviet operatives who now fight for the rights of Russian mutants, which team includes, I am happy to say, Ursa Major. He doesn't appear in this story, but he continues to be the best bear who can turn into a naked man. I still remember the episode we did with X-Factor Annual Number 1, where there were just these comically over-the-top, horrifying Russian accents, and, and you were very good at doing them, as I recall, Jay. I don't know if that's like a blessing or a curse. It's like you being burdened with terrible Russian purpose. I don't know if I would use the word good in that context, but anyway, um, I should add that the, aside from the exiles, there are still other former Soviet super soldiers around. Those guys are currently divided into two teams, um, both of whom will come up in this story. Those are Romant and the People's Protectorate. But anyway, back in Neftalensk, the land of terrible things, one of many lands of terrible things, the primary one in this story, yeah, the, there are townspeople in the town standing around doing nothing. Garnoff couldn't read their minds because their minds are gone. They're basically comatose just standing in place. So this has been the case for a while, and they're going to be there for another several days at least, and I'm kind of surprised that none, none of them have, have collapsed or died of exposure or anything like that. They're wearing a lot of fur. I assume that that just makes them invincible to all cold. I would expect them to get, like, frostbite on exposed faces and stuff, though. Hmm. I mean, some of them have beards. Not all of them. They aren't, they aren't like, Tolkien dwarves. Okay, so maybe it's like in Diablo 2, where if you're playing a paladin, you have these auras that protect you, but they also protect people near you. Maybe the people with beards, that beard glory extends to those around them, and so they're alternating like beard, no beard, beard, no beard, so they have a network of invincible beardage. Okay, you know that your nose is still exposed when you have a beard, right? Like, in your cheeks? I mean, not if it's a really thorough beard. I mean, I can, I can literally see most of your face right now, dude. I had to shave, like, right before we recorded. It was all the way up to my hairline before this. You are full of lies today. Ha! You don't know me. So anyway, Darkstar and Blind Faith investigate, and shortly thereafter, Darkstar is confronted by her father. This is a supervillain and general-purpose science weirdo. His, his codename is The Presence, which he totally makes puns about, and it's terrible. Now... This encounter is the result of the same guy responsible for sucking the life out of the town, and he is an unpleasant gentleman named the Soul Skinner. The Soul Skinner's deal is that he basically eats people's pain and leaves them empty husks. The specific mechanism by which he does this is nebulous, it's never really explored, and it makes absolutely no sense. So, you know, just run with it. So once it became clear that Darkstar was being attacked with, like, nightmare visions from her deepest, darkest fears, 
I kind of just figured it was despair. You remember him? And yeah, same. Right. And I mean, the, the Soul Skinner basically seems to be despair, but he's got a different name and a backstory that's kind of relevant. Well, and he has different effects on people. He somehow consumes people's despair, but also forces them to face it, but also sucks out the rest of their minds along with their despair, but kind of? There, yeah. So nothing involving mutant powers in this story arc makes a lot of sense. It is really, really messy in that regard. It is, but um, I guess the Soul Skinner is a pretty sweet name, so at least it's got that going for it. It's a super sweet name. So what I assume going in here is that this arc is basically governed by the laws of Russian tragedy rather than any normal laws of nature and causality. So basically whatever happens is going to lead to the next saddest possible thing. Okay, that also might explain why Omega Red is called a series of names that doesn't seem to be his official series of names, but since people in Russian tragedies, or I guess, you know, Russia in general, have a whole bunch of names and different nicknames and family names and stuff like that, it fits in that way too. As souls are being skinned in Neftalinsk, the X-Men are arriving about a thousand miles to the south at Pyotr's family's farm. Uh, they are running a few days late because of some, of some hijinks that took place in the concurrent Wolverine solo series. So who's, who's here? Who's with the team today? Well, we have sort of a blue team, gold team hybrid. More blue than gold, but still. From blue, we have Cyclops, Psylocke, Jubilee, and Wolverine. From gold, we have Colossus and Iceman. And speaking of Cyclops and Psylocke, their awkward flirtation subplot continues, and it's so awkward and boring and so chock full of weird secondhand hand embarrassment that I move we just kind of skip that. That may be for the best. There is one Cyclops Psylocke flirtation scene later I do want to talk about because of how ridiculous and terrible it is, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Just everything about it is awkward. They don't seem to be enjoying it at all either. All flirtation aside, because these are the X-Men, and the X-Men engage only in serious platonic and business-like relationships, they land and the Rasputins happily reunite, uh, which reunion and later introductions to the rest of, of the X-Men, uh, Flagwatch 113 watches with increasing glee before urgently put, placing a call to Vajin. And you, you may remember Colonel Vajin as a big old KGB dude who's interacted with Val Cooper and lots of other people. He's been around for a while. He's basically the Russian Nick Fury. Pyotr has been having a really rough time, and he's having a hard time being back home. So he does the thing he does to blow off steam, which is aggressive landscaping. Right, there was that time that uh, convinced John Byrne to leave the X-Men where he was pulling up a stump and Byrne and Claremont disagreed on whether it should be shown as being hard. There was the time when he was pulling up wreckage in the Xavier School uh, after one of the many times it was destroyed. I mean, this is a man who takes landscaping seriously. He did it so hard that he uprooted not only a tree in a fictional universe, he reached through to our world and uprooted freaking John Byrne. I mean, that's pretty impressive. John Byrne has a strong personality, as I understand. Diplomatically put, um, back to Pyotr, he has been having a pretty profound ongoing crisis of conscience and confidence. And honestly, he's been having this crisis pretty much since Proteus in, in, in bits and pieces. He has not had a good last decade or so. And, he, and this last time, he hasn't even drawn since Mikhail died. Did you ever think that after everything we have done, everything we have been through, that our accomplishments as X-Men haven't nearly justified our pain and loss? Sometimes I wonder if leaving here to follow another man's dream, no matter how noble, was not the single worst choice of my life. I mean, yeah, probably. Inside, Jubilee is braiding Ilyana's hair and showing her how to use makeup and is also summarizing all of the tragedies that Ilyana has been through, like right in front of Ilyana and right in front of the Rasputins. And it's awkward. Yeah, Iceman tries his best to defuse it, but it doesn't really work. And, and, and I just sort of want him to take Jubilee outside and just be like, nope, nope, go play outside, kid. Inappropriate. Back in Moscow, the... Big higher-ups are trying to figure out what they should do about, you know, their suddenly empty town and the disappearance of two of two of the local superheroes. And they are wondering if they should 
activate red flag number 113, which is presumably who Flagwatch 113 has been watching. But they decide, no, not yet. Instead, they have these handy X-Men. And instead, they also have a handy Omega Red. That's a bad plan. Right? I mean, the X-Men part's probably good, but Omega Red, has it ever been a good idea to activate Omega Red? Ever? I mean, I'm not sure it was a good idea to actually write Omega Red and put him in stories, so, you know. Valid. That said, great action figure. They could have had him just be an action figure. Like, back in Ninja Turtles, they would make action figures that would never make it into the comics or the cartoon. They were just there as toys, and that was fine. And maybe Omega Red would work that way. Seems reasonable. So, before we move on, a couple of things. First off, so we have Red Flag 113, we have Flagwatch 113, and I'm wondering, is this like an Easter egg? Is this some kind of a reference to maybe Uncanny X-Men 113? Turns out, no, that was the issue where Magneto had a robot nanny force-feed the X-Men baby food, but on the upside, Nestieza has given us the gift of remembering the story where Magneto has a robot nanny force-feed the X-Men baby food, so there's that. I think that's more of a punishment. I mean, that would fit this story. It's, it's about terrible things. But there's also... Okay, no, this is a terrible thing as well. Um, Cyclops has a terrible dream in the middle of the night, as he does because his life is terrible, and goes well, up to... and because he's just had horrible shit happen that involved reliving having to give up his kid who was actively dying at the time, and the possible revelation that that kid is either a supervillain or Cable. Right, like I said, his life is terrible, and so he gets up to take a shower, and when he opens the door, he sees Psylocke, like, in this improbably sexy, wearing a tiny little towel that just barely covers her bits pose, being totally calm in this extremely steamy bathroom, and Cyclops stammers and runs away, and it's supposed to be all sexy and flirty, but I just keep thinking, like, wait, he just got out of bed, like... Probably he hasn't brushed his teeth and he's got terrible morning breath and, like, probably he's really got to pee and that's going to be distracting. And this would not be a sexy situation at all. This would just be incredibly awkward and unpleasant for everyone involved. I mean, to be fair, it is written and drawn like it's really awkward and unpleasant for everyone involved. Well, right, but they don't specify why it probably was, and so I felt like I would help Fabian Nicieza and Andy Hubert. Miles, you, you gotta trust the art. You gotta trust the comic to really speak for itself. I mean, you don't have to spell everything out. We can we can see this and and see the horrible awkwardness of this morning hallway encounter. Really, I I feel like we should just let Kubert's you know line art, the beautiful colors, the strong, simplistic, minimal, but poignant writing carry the scene and and let us all and 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 just you know sit here and and not enjoy the secondhand embarrassment we're feeling on part on the parts of the characters. I believe in the system. The system works. And that takes us to X-Men number 18, A Skinning of Souls Part 2, The Crops Mature. I love these really dire titles. I believe in the system. The system skins souls. Yeah, man, the chapter titles are really, really horror story, and this isn't one, but that's okay. They're still good titles. Before we get into the main part of the story, there's a scene we should just talk about right now. It's more Russian bureaucrats being all mysterious and stuff. There's a General Sheltov talking to various Russian scientists about a mysterious plan, and I love how they're all talking vaguely even among themselves. Like, it kind of reminds me of a Nerve from Evangelion or of basically anybody from Xenogears. And in the background... Logan's there. Wolverine is there. There's that characteristic, wait, no, he comes into the light and it's just Matsuo Tsurayaba who has Wolverine's hair exactly because it's the early 90s and half the characters do. I guess it could have been Star Fox or Beast. Oh, I assume he was just really impressed by Wolverine when Wolverine kicked a bunch of ninjas' asses and so styled his hair after him. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So, and I realize as we get to this point in the outline that um, we misread the the number for a lot of it so so actually um it is not flag watch or red flag 113 it is it is red flag 133 being watched likewise by flag watch 133 it's been a very long day but this was a happy accident because we got to remind everyone of that time that magneto had his robot nanny force feed the x-men baby food we define the word happy very differently hey in this story you take what you can get okay fair enough Anyway, Matsuo is here presumably because Omega Red was mentioned, and Matsuo Tsurayaba, having resurrected Omega Red by having a bunch of ninjas kill themselves, is kind of in charge of Omega. So, that's a thing. It won't really become very relevant, though. So, what is Omega Red up to now that he's on the scene? Well, he is up to an in-media-res opening that's very confusing. The first 
panel of this issue, the first page, in fact, is a face divided down the middle. One half is Omega Red's characteristic, very pale face. The other half is, I don't know, it looks kind of like a hair metal orc, for lack of a better way of describing him. Like, it's this, it's this green dude with tusks and giant purple hair. Orc is a good metaphor, because I'm thinking World of Warcraft, and this is not actually the Soul Skinner. This is the Soul Skinner as he appears in the minds of his victims. He's actually kind of a nebbish-looking dude with a beard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But we are currently in the mind of that victim, that victim being Omega Red, because apparently between issues, Omega Red was sent in and got in a fight with the Soul Skinner that's now taking place on not the astral plane, but certainly some sort of psychic plane. And Andy Hubert draws some kick-ass, very muscly, very 90s, very dynamic fight scenes, and I appreciate that. Now, since we're only a little bit of the way into the second act of a three-act story, obviously Omega Red is going to lose this fight. Exactly, because the Soul Skinner does some psychic stuff feeding on Omega Red's pain, convincing him that he's covered in centipedes or worms, not unfortunately in the fine words of Wolverine from the animated series, COVERED IN SCORPIONS! And Omega Red is down for the count, he is now a mindless shell controlled by the Soul Skinner. The Soul Skinner is one of the more poetic hair metal orcs I've ever encountered. I look inside you and see nothing but a shattered mirror, Arcady. The jagged taste of broken glass is like sweet candy on my tongue, but it does not make for a filling meal. Okay, well, I'll give him one thing that is indeed technically a simile. HP and MP restored, but you're still hungry. (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, the X-Men have met up by this point with Colonel Vajin, and Colonel Vajin is now wearing this sweet orange metal psychic defense armor, but my favorite part is that the helmet has little kitty cat ears on it. I'm not sure that that's what it's supposed to be, but he just looks like, I don't know, he looks like a, a, a cute little kitty Daft Punk guy. Miles, that's, that's how kitty cats defend themselves against psychic incursion. It's the cute little ears. That makes perfect sense. Vashin says that Russia's had a flag watch on the target, and I looked it up. According to cursory Googling, flag watches are not a real thing in Russia or elsewhere. But again, the Googling was cursory. Uh, This flag watch is a mole planted as a civilian to watch for threats to the government, in this case, powerful mutant types. Now, Colossus is frustrated at being called away from his first family visit in a million years for this whole thing. And Colossus is justifiably pretty pissed off that he got dragged away from seeing his family for the first time in a very long time to deal with this nonsense. What are we but pawns in an endless game between those who have power and those who crave it? Accurate. Colossus's growing despair, though, really does feel earned at this point, and boy, it's gonna get more earned. God, it's like they're just being pushed through torture after torture for the entertainment of a legion of faceless, hungry humans desperate for their next failure or triumph. What was the old Onion article? Video game character wonders why Angry God always chooses continue? I think we just referenced that a few weeks ago, but yes. Well, it's worth referencing again. So, the X-Men land in Neftalensk. Now, they're in, like, winter gear, lots of fur and jackets and stuff, but Psylocke is still wearing just her, like, barely qualifies as Bikini Bottom's lower half. Her thighs are bare. Her hips are bare. Okay, I think you basically already accounted for this earlier with your your radiant beard theory. But there aren't any beards nearby. She's going to have to get closer to the mindless citizens first. Ah, but you don't know what her uniform is made out of. Oh my god, pure beard fabric. Unstable beardicules. And the the state of the town is basically what it was when Darkstar and Blind Faith showed up, except now Darkstar and Blind Faith are among the catatonic citizens uh, sitting on a bench staring off into space. And there's still a psychic presence in the town, apparently, because a psychically masked Omega Red shows up and grabs Jubilee. And after, after Wolverine tells Omega Red to let her go, Omega Red replies gloriously. I would if I were not but shards of the man you once knew, Logan. Torn asunder in mind and spirit, who challenges you now to do the same to flesh and bone, as I will reciprocate in kind. 
So you know how Silver Age villains were mostly known for their overly complicated plans? I feel like 90s villains check that same box, but with overly complex dialogue, and I approve. He could have just said, fight me. Yeah, but where's the fun in that? That's so many fewer syllables. Well, they have a big fight, and it does not go well for our heroes because Wolverine is overcome by his hatred of Omega Red and goes berserk, stops being strategic, and doesn't make much headway. And Omega Red, for his part, is under Soul Skinner's control. He doesn't have a mind for Psylocke to psychically knife. The Soul Skinner takes this opportunity to sneak up and get into Cyclops' head, feeding on scenes of his pain, including my favorite... A baby wearing a diaper and Strife's helmet, which is the greatest thing of all time. That is not a child-safe outfit. Oh, there's nothing okay about that. It's wonderful. And we get a little bit of captioning. It's unclear whether it's the Soul Skinner or Cyclops telepathically speaking, but there's one line that really stuck out at me. Jay, if you would. To succeed as a mutant, does the Summers have to fail as a human? I mean... Basically, but all of yeah. this angst, this is too much torment for a guy that feeds on torment. The Soul Skinner is apparently up against the wrong team because goddamn. Yeah, I love that Cyclops is canonically so screwed up and depressed that he literally chokes a mutant who eats angst. It's kind of like the time that, that Phoenix decided to open Mastermind's mind up to the whole universe at once, only just like really depressing. So the X-Men get their asses kicked, even though the Soul Skinner is briefly given pause by Cyclops' emo depression, and Colossus and Colonel Vajan, being covered in metal and so thus being immune to Omega Red's mutant death factor, they get the hell out of there. They run away because otherwise they're going to die, and as they do, Vajan's kitty cat suit senses heat signatures of a bunch of people in a building— and when Colossus X-factors his way through the wall of that building, they discover a bunch of terrified children— that's right. And terrified should be a cue here. The kids are fine. I mean, they're scared, but they are unaffected by Soul Skinner's powers. And this worries Colonel Vajan. He mumbles something about Red, Red Flag 133, be, therefore also being immune to the powers and maybe being usable. We'll get to more of this later. But first, let's cut to Oost Ordinsky Farm Collective, that wonderful place where the Rasputins have grown up with their idyllic lives, where one time Piotr punched a tractor to save his sister, where nothing bad ever happens. Wait, does that mean it's a good thing when a bunch of orange kitty cat armored soldiers with giant guns burst in, murder Colossus and Ilyana's parents, and carry Ilyana off? This sucks so much! I mean, the soldiers weren't even supposed to do that. They just did. It's like this entire story exists just to fuck Colossus up. I mean, I guess it kind of does. It really does. I mean, I, I feel like this entire decade exists to fuck Colossus up because it's only going to get worse for him from here. But man, this whole thing, this is like, this feels like misery porn. This is, this is Jude the Obscure levels of misery. That said, I feel like it at least has more of a point than, say, the Hellions getting offed uh, in early Uncanny post-relaunch just to show that the new villains were badass. Like, at least this is part of the story and drives it forward more. No, no, no. This is, this is child murder-suicide because we were too many with many adorably misspelled levels of over-the-top misery. This is ridiculous. I feel like Jude the Obscure could probably use more of an explanation, but we have a lot of X-Men to talk about. Maybe we'll get to it another time. That's it. That's all you need to know. Jude the Obscure is a novel about people who can't have nice things because everything is terrible, and Thomas Hardy lays it on so thick that it comes full circle and into ludicrous. Well, anyway, now that we've gotten these terrible events out of the way, let's cut right back to Vashon and Colossus. As Vashon explains, yeah, so Ilyana, your little sister, that's Red Flag 133. We've been watching her because, like, we found out from your brother, Mikhail, that your family can do teleporty stuff sometimes. And it turned out that she could, too, when she was older. So the government's thinking maybe we, like, re-age her and then she can teleport the Soul Skinner away. But also maybe that'll kill her. Or at least accelerate the development of her mutant powers. They're not necessarily going to age her. They're, they're just going to kickstart her mutation, however that works. Again, the mechanics of pretty much everything important in this story are really nebulous, including this. And that brings us to part three of three, Harvest of the Innocent. Mmm, the Innocent. 
This is written by Fabian Nesseza, penciled again by Andy Kubert, um, inked by pretty much everyone in the Western Hemisphere, and colored again by Joe Rosas. The Soul Skinner at this point has the X-Men under his thumb, and he's assisted in this by Psylocke, you know, unwillingly, because she's got a psychic link to everyone. So he can he can basically reach through her and get to the whole misery buffet at once, which gets us an amazing angst montage. It is such a giant angst montage that it's one of those 90-degree rotated two-page spreads of all of the X-Men's terrible, terrible thoughts. Also... Rosas keeps forgetting to color in Cyclops' glasses, so it looks throughout this montage like Psylocke has been fantasizing about fucking Clark Kent. You know, that's surprisingly easy to picture. I don't really know that he's her type, but I would be surprised that Cyclops is too, so, you know. Also, the speech bubbles here, as the Soul Skinner is describing all the miseries he's seeing, are laid out in a really weird way where they're not, like, in the same sections as the pictures that they're about, and it's super hard to follow. Oh, you think the balloon placement is iffy here, just you wait. So, the Soul Skinner does his whole blaming narration thing for a while, talking mostly about how terrible Cyclops' life is, but then he realizes, wait, Cyclops has lost a kid too, and expounds at length. Are you that much stronger than I am, Summers, when our sins are so similar? Little Hoxada. I miss you so, child. I tried to ease your pain. I did the very thing I had sworn never to do. I entered your mind. I tried to influence your thoughts, to ease your pain. But I could not even do that for you. I could only feel you slip away. Yeah, so the Soul Skinner's daughter died. That's the pain he's trying to inflict on other people. And to make it even worse, it turns out that his daughter's mom, Soul Skinner's wife, she was a flag watch assigned to him and she did not use her government contact to help their daughter. Everything is terrible everywhere. So what's actually going to happen now is that he's going to go get really drunk and freeze to death hugging the grave of his first wife. Wait, is this more Jude the Obscure stuff? God, yes. Anyway... So yeah, he's basically trying to take the pain that he's felt and inflict it on other people and then also eat it because something, something, mutant something. I feel like he and Strife would get along really well. They could start a band. Yeah, this dude's MO and his powers are really, really nonsense. It's, it's just, you know, kind of endemic misery land. Speaking of which, the Soul Skinner freaks out and he sends Omega Red after Vajan and Colossus in hopes that he will catch them before they discover his secret. But it is too late. The secret, as it turns out, is the local kids huddled together and unharmed. These kids at least are unharmed. But Ilyana is not in great shape. The government folks, the, the kitty cat soldiers, have shown up with her in a fancy and, and vaguely threatening technology box. Vajan tries to talk Colossus down, basically gives him a the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, but Co Colossus rejoins, this isn't Star Trek, you fucker. That part doesn't happen, but it, it, it's, it, you get the gist. Before Colossus can get to Ilyana, the Soul Skinner shows up and does his usual flowery dialogue. Don't weaken now, X-Man, for you only know half the story. These state agents have much to reveal to you, Nikolovich. Allow me the luxury. Oh, say it, you can. The pleasure of showing you what their minds have already shown me. Open yourself up, you raw, unyielding powerhouse. Let me peel you open, layer by layer, and feed you on the pulpy anguish of others. The anguish of your very parents, Peter Nikolovich, as they were gunned down, murdered, Peter, butchered, in your home just hours ago. You do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And then, in... The moment of peak bad balloon placement in this issue, Colossus's crotch exclaims, You killed my parents. And there you have it, folks. It's much less exciting for, from here, but I guess we should at least finish the story. The post-crotch yelling story. I mean... Yeah, so Soul Skinner continues to guilt trip Piotr for even briefly considering using Ileana to stop him. Which, I don't even know how that would work. She's a freaking teleporter. What What's she gonna do? Like... 
take him on a pleasant vacation or I guess to limbo? Yeah, I mean, she could teleport him away. The Russians don't want to kill him or maybe they think they can't kill him. Regardless, Soul Skinner's daughter briefly psychically manifests to guilt trip him. Man, this guy, he's like a nesting doll of misery. He's, he's, he's a misery matryoshka. Oh man, that has the same alliteration as Soul Skinner. Well done. Man, that's what they should have named him. So Soul Skinner decides at this point he is done. He is going to destroy everything and commit suicide by pressing buttons on the device Ilyana is in. How this is going to work, I have no idea. But thankfully, Colossus has a plan, and it is an awesome and, as is par for the course for this story, implausible plan. Yeah, so so his plan is first he's going to go get all the children from the barn. And and, and to, to get them to come with him, what, what he t- tells them, God, he's so bad with kids. Children, you must come with me. I need you to come play a game, I'm sorry to say, of life. And death. God, Colossus. And and how this game goes, apparently, is bringing all the kids to the X-Men and having Psylocke stab one of them in the head with her psychic knife. Okay, this kind of reminds me of in Judgment War, when Cyclops zapped everybody's hope and cooperation out of his eyeballs at a space god, and that worked. This is zapping all of the innocence of a bunch of children through a sexy ninja's fist into a weird hair metal orc. That's much creepier. Well, yeah, but it works. Yeah, um, so this this floods Soul Skinner with, with the innocence of, of a, a passel of children, which basically short-circuits him. And again, the mechanics of, of this solution remain fairly baffling, and then, then Vajan comes in and shoots Soul Skinner in the head, and absolutely nobody lives happily ever after. Oh wait, no, that's not true. That's not true. Rogue and Gambit do, because we've got a parallel story going on at the Xavier School while all of this misery is unfolding in Siberia. Okay, so you remember how in Executioner's Song, Rogue got blinded by Strobe and is still recovering from that, because apparently being blind you can recover from in, I don't know, like a week or two? Well, if it's if it's just bright light damage, I maybe. Anyway, mutant stuff. Mutant stuff. So Gambit's hanging out with Rogue. Remember, they've been flirting a lot, they've been learning to sort of communicate a little better, and he does this sort of trust walk thing with her on the diving board of the swimming pool. And he's like, hey, remember, you can trust me. And then pushes her off and catches her and said, But remember, you can't trust anyone! Gambit is really bad at this. It's so bizarre. Like, during this era, basically every other encounter between Gambit and Rogue alternates between sleazy and creepy on Gambit's part and, like, legitimately romantic. Yeah, they then proceed to go flying together, and he does a pretty good job of navigating for her while Beast and and Jean Grey sort of watch them and sigh about how they too were once you know, free-spirited and innocent and not really tired and grumpy and relegated to the second-string book. Uh, Beast is talking about how he's about to hit 30, in fact, and in fact, the X-Men franchise in this era is about to hit 30. It's probably best not to think too hard about how Marvel time works with this 30-year-old Beast as a marker because it makes no sense, but still, it's a nice touch. Yeah, yeah, always ignore specific numbers and stuff like this. Uh, They will never, ever, ever add up or line up. Speaking of things that aren't going to add up or line up, um, there is another subplot going on. We mentioned that Matsuo is in Russia dealing with the Omega Red situation, but there is someone else affiliated closely with him who is off on her own. In Tokyo, a purple-haired woman with a truly improbable outfit, like purple hood, purple thigh-high boots, full sleeves and gloves, and a one-piece swimsuit with thigh holes that are seriously cut up to her fucking armpits. I don't know how her breasts don't just, like, fly out the sides of this thing. The focused totality of something, probably. Ah, but that would be a spoiler. But anyway, this mysterious woman is brutally beating the crap out of a bunch of headband-wearing and nunchaku-wielding random street punks. She stabs a dude's eyes out with her fingernails, like, really brutally, and I never like that panel, it always creeps me out. But she feels that after beating up these random, like, side-scrolling enemies, she's ready to track down the X-Men. I, I, I feel like that's a fine plan, but maybe she should consider tracking down some pants first. I mean, that, that whole situation looks really uncomfortable. Eh, Jill Valentine didn't bother in Resident Evil 3. This lady probably won't either. 
And I still find that deeply, deeply upsetting. If it had been Resident Evil 2, I would have been more inclined to accept it. But Jill has fought zombies. She knows that zombies lunge for your knees and ankles. And yet, when they attack, when she has access to everything in her home, when she has access, presumably, to shoes, to full pants, she just fucking runs out there. Like, come on, Jill, really? Maybe the miniskirt has a proximity protective effect the same way that beards do. No, this is also why I won't watch um, the movie Legend. That's reasonable. Well, anyway, our mysterious purple lady with her mysterious purple outfit heads to a little bit outside of Tokyo to the stronghold of a Lord Nyoiren, who looks a hell of a lot like the businessman-era Mandarin who was involved in Psylocke's origin but apparently isn't. That's just confusing. She slaughters a bunch of his ninjas because she wants to become his elite assassin once again. Apparently, this is her old boss. But he says... She has to kill her other self, Psylocke, first. That's right. This is Quanan, the woman who was body-swapped with Psylocke, and she is running around doing all of these murders in Psylocke's original body. It's really confusing. It's a retcon that doesn't quite line up, but um, at least there's a lot of purple, so that's a thing. What's also a thing are our listeners, who are very confused about X-Men for good reason, and some of them have questions. I mean, I have a lot of questions after the story arc. Right. But this is not the time for my questions. This is the time for yours. And Siler asks on Twitter, could Pyro control Jubilee's plasmoids? Okay, so I assume you're talking about old Pyro, who could control flame but couldn't generate it. His powers are pretty straightforward. That's the whole deal with them. Now, Jubilee, her powers are less straightforward. She can create lumikinetic explosive light blasts, also known as pyrotechnic energy plasmoids, also known as fireworks. Those aren't real. Well, I mean, fireworks are real things, but those other those other descriptions aren't really right. They have to be real. Look how many words are in them. Uh, any any uh, physicists listening to this, if, if you have insights here, we would love to hear them. So here's what I got. Uh, Emma Frost, later on, way later on, talks about how Jubilee can actually detonate matter at a subatomic level. That's why her powers, when she gets upset, are occasionally way more powerful. So, explosions are caused by, among other things, according to what little research I've been able to do in my utter lack of physics experience, by the rapid liberation of heat. If heat liberates rapidly, it explodes. If it's slower, it becomes fire. So, maybe if Jubilee made really slow fireworks, then Pyro could control them? I, I really got nothing there. I would like to again state my lack of physics experience. So, uh, like Jay said, if you're a physicist and you have ideas, let us know. I, conversely, would like to state the utter nonsense that is Jubilee's powers. So, yeah, six of one, half dozen of the other. Jeff asks via email, I've been reading X-Comics since the 80s. Oftentimes I try to go back and reread older comics, but often I can't get past certain era-specific things. Sometimes it's the art style, and sometimes it's Claremont-era Cyclops still staying stuff like, Watch out, Jack! My eye beams will wallop you! You two critique, but still remain so positive. Thanks, we try. Do you have any advice for a non-critic, consumer of comics, to be as positive, or am I simply stuck in subjective simplicity? Okay, that is a terrific question, and it's something that I think a lot about going into this. Um... Personally, I find that it really helps to go in with some context, to be kind of aware of the era you're going into, that it was a different time with different aesthetics, different specific standards, and to not just look at enjoying the comic, you know, as a comic you're reading for the story, but to enjoy it as an artifact, as kind of a time capsule. Yeah, it's kind of like watching an old black and white movie. It can seem dated, but if you let go of how stories are supposed to work in the modern familiar context, it can be really awesome. Like, put yourself in the shoes of somebody reading the comic when it came out before our modern standards were established, and think of, for them, how much more modern this would have been than, say, the Golden Age, and how it planted the seeds for what turned into modern comics eventually. It's part of this glorious history going from really cheesy stuff in the Golden Age to really cheesy stuff of a different sort now. Something else that really, really helps me is to seek out positive opinions on the comic. Um, I am lucky enough to have a, a wide, wide, wide base to draw from when it comes to friends whose opinions I trust, who think a lot about the X-Men, and a lot of them have really different tastes, and I find that hearing them talk about the stuff they really like and get really enthusiastic about stuff I'm lukewarm on kind of lets me secondhand ride on the wave of their enthusiasm. I may not be super into the comic themselves, but I'm super into how into it my friends are, and 
kind of you know gives me a boost to to at least finding and recognizing and searching for the things that they find really enjoyable about it. And finally, if worst comes to worst, I also derive a lot of enjoyment from reading bad lines aloud in ridiculous character voices because I am a monster. Just find one thing you like about those old comics and ride that thing like a mystical pegasus through the doldrums of plaid suits or whatever. Are you talking shit about plaid, the plaid suits of the Silver Age, Miles? I, um, would never. Miles, those plaid suits are my mystical peg- pegasus. See? It takes all kinds. And speaking of all kinds, and, or sorry, and speaking of things that take all kinds, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. We are here thanks to you. You are the folks we answer to, and you are the folks whose patronage on Patreon makes it possible for us to do this and keep it ad-free. And some of those tiers of patronage and support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. So let's hear from one of those concepts right now, the Angry Claremontian narrator. Did you think that you were safe, Robert Bergsbeken? That the supple and formidable walls of Abslantis would protect you from the tragedy that sooner or later reaches everyone even remotely affiliated with the X-Men? Brian Caffrey learned the hard way that no one, no matter how noble or generous they may be, will be spared. And soon you too will face your own inevitable reckoning. So, so that got a little bleak, and for a change of pace, or possibly um, not a change of pace, we'll see, it's kind of a toss-up. The mic is going to go now to a Sexy Gambit. That Russian fiasco sounded like it was as depressing as a Zydeco band with no washboard player. Thankfully, Gambit's smart enough to stay home and romance La Belle Rogue. Gambit don't understand why pushing her off a diving board didn't make her melt in Gambit's arms, though. Could Gambit's suave be slipping? Huh. What's that, John Larson? You say in gentle compassion and empathy be a better way to show a femme you care. Michael Dobson? You telling Gambit respect and agency of his petite may be more likely to make her swoon? These are radical ideas, mes frere. But maybe Rogue be worth flirting outside the sleazy box, no? You have Gambit's tanks. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the long-suffering and deeply patient Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, and come see us at a Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival on Saturday, November 3rd. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're coming up on a major comics milestone. As Uncanny X-Men hits issue 300. That's a lot. (laughs) 